For the last uh, two weeks, we have been so blessed by Pastor Scott's messages. He, he's spoken about judging and loving and asked our, to, to judge or not to judge, to love or not to love. And he, he's spoken on those things and he said, you know, that we know the answer already, but yet we still struggle. And this morning, after we talked about judging and loving, I, I thought maybe we would talk about one more thing that's in that same vein, and that is complaining. Complaining. Um, <laughs> to complain or not to complain. I suspect, as with judging and loving, you know the answer. And yet we could go and we could walk out and we could get out early and have our donuts and coffee in the foyer as we could the last two weeks. But the challenge is, the challenge is that we know what we're supposed to do, but we just don't want to do it. Isn't that the story of life, though? You know, I think about complaining, and you know, I'm one of those people that I got to admit, sometimes I just like to complain. I think about the things that I complain about, and um, <laughs> the only thing I can think of is there's an online hashtag, some of you, you're like, what is that? It's an internet thing. It's a way to, to, to keep um, topics together on like Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, uh, social media. But there's a, it, it ties it all together, and the hashtag is called First World Problems. Have any of you heard of this? First World Problems. And, and what that is, is, is that's complaining about things that aren't really that bad. I'll give you an example. Jeff gave me this example. He said, the air conditioner is too cold. Hashtag first world problems. Incidentally, I'm roughly comfortable in here, so I'm guessing it's a little cold in here right now. Yeah, there we go, right? Uh, I'm just, just a guess. <laughs> and uh, so we, we love to complain. First world problems. Uh, another thing, how many of you, you want to complain like, it takes me so long to clean my house when company comes over because my house is so large. Hashtag first world problems. Right? Because others don't have that. And so a lot of times we complain and we kind of like, well, we just have to recognize, I guess, that we are complaining from a position of immense affluence and immense privilege in many cases. But then you might say to me, hey, pastor, I get it. Complaining about it being too cold or too warm in my air conditioned and heated home or having too many bathrooms to clean and you know and, 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 and having to mow all the acres I own. I get it. That's that I I get that kind of complaining, but but Pastor, I, I you know, stuff's really going on in my life that I really think I have a right to complain about. And maybe for some of you, I look around and what I've been privileged to know about many of your lives is, in a lot of cases, you do. Real struggles, real problems you're working through. And so I thought about that as I thought about this passage from Exodus. 
Because, to be totally honest, the people of Israel are in a little bit of trouble here in Exodus 16. You know the story uh, uh, from, from the movie, or from reading it, uh, that the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt, and through the mighty work of God, through his servant Moses and Aaron, that God delivers the people through the plagues, and finally Israel, um, let's, finally Israel is freed. The Pharaoh says, get away from this before you destroy us. And so Israel leaves and they go and then Pharaoh changes his mind and has his chariot drivers chase them down to the Red Sea. And once again God intervenes and they're saved at the Red Sea as it parts for them but comes back together for the Egyptians. And now it's been a month later and they're in the wilderness Something that probably, I, you know, I've never been to Egypt. I suspect some of you have been to Egypt in this room because I know many of you travel widely. Um, and, uh, but one thing about Egypt is the vast majority of Egypt exists within just a couple of miles of the Nile River, population-wise. This week I went on uh, Google Maps and I got a satellite image of what Egypt looks like. And you'll see there, there's green areas and there's brown areas. The brown areas are desert. And the green areas are where annually the Nile River, because of monsoons in the headwaters, which are actually south and not north, but it floods. Flooding's not great. We've seen the damage it's done. But the result is that the water soaks the ground and it's some of the finest farmland in that part of the world. Those of you who are farmers, you know the the great struggles but also the great fertility of bottomland farms. And so, but what you found there is when the people in Egypt lived, they lived in those green areas and they were areas where you could grow just about anything. So there was plenty of area for food to grow, for cattle to graze, for animals, and they were able to eat. And so where they were in Egypt, I'm going to say roughly was where the blue star is on the screen. And so now a month later they have wandered and now they are roughly where the orange star is. Do you notice a difference there? Well, so they're not so much in a fertile area. And so they get out there in the middle of the desert and the mountains. Now we don't know where they are. They're somewhere in that peninsula. It could be further south, could be further north. I found out if you ask 10 different scholars where they were, you'll get 15 different answers. So there's somewhere, you can tell there's not much variation. There's somewhere where they're suddenly with a bunch of people and there's no water and no food. And suddenly they're thinking, wait. Maybe this, was, maybe this leaving slavery thing wasn't such a great idea. I mean, think about it. Egypt wasn't perfect. I get it. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, hey, we had food to eat most of the time. Um, we had a roof over our head. We had government jobs we could never lose. Um, you know, really... Moses, why did you take us away from Egypt? Actually, that sounds pretty good right about now. 
Uh, in fact, uh, you've brought us out here to the wilderness. I get it. Your plan, not to save us, is to kill us. Were there no graveyards in Egypt? We could have died there. And so they begin to complain. We're going to die. We're going to die. It's interesting uh, that um, <laughs> one, um, one commentator I read on this, on this passage says that by this point in Exodus 16, the Israelites are what he called inveterate complainers. And what that means is they complained all the time. Read the book of Exodus. You'll see in the very beginning they cry out because they're in slavery. And then God calls Moses to come and deliver the people. And Moses complains. I can't do it. Can't talk so well. And God gives him Aaron. And then when they come, Moses says, I complain. I don't think they're going to listen to me when I get there. And he gets that nice staff snake thing going. And then later, the people, when they find out what Moses is doing and it's causing the Pharaoh to double the the hard labor put upon them, says, hey, Moses, they complain about Moses. Stop doing this. Stop, stop, stop. And then later, when uh, they're set free, they go across, they start leaving, and then Pharaoh's army starts chasing them. And once again, they complain. Well, did you bring us out here from slavery to be slaughtered in the desert by Pharaoh's army? And then when that passes, they get to the wilderness and they say, now there's no food here. They are complainers to the nth degree. You know, that's the thing about complaining. The thing about complaining. I, I, I was thinking about that and, and, and I don't know if any of you ever read or pray the Psalms. I found them to be really helpful about a year ago, I committed to reading through all 150 psalms at least six times a year. And I've been doing that. Uh, you can do it on a daily basis. Uh, some are longer than others, so you can't quite say, well, five a day because, or, or, or two and a half a day because some of them are 176 verses and some are three. But I was reminded, of, but, but the psalms often, what they do is they tell the history of Israel. They tell the history of Israel. And one of them where it does that is Psalm 106. And it tells the story of what God did. It's a a hymn of praise, but it's also a hymn of of lamentation, of confession. And I love in Psalm 106 what the psalmist remembers about this time. It says, they soon forgot, this is verse 13 if you're, following along. They soon forgot God's deeds and did not wait for his counsel. A craving seized them in the wilderness and they put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked but sent leanness into their soul. Isn't that a really powerful image that the complaining and the struggling that they had, it had sent, it caused leanness to come into their soul. That it sapped them of generosity. It, it, it sapped them of, of a spirit toward God and put, turned them inward and got them smaller and narrower. 
And as I was thinking about that, I think that's what complaining does to us. Because a lot of times we don't start, we don't just complain about one thing. When we get to complaining, we start to complain about everything. Like most of you, I don't recognize that in me, but I believe it exists because I see it in others. True story, right? How many of you, no hands here, you know someone who is just constantly negative? Just complaining all the time. How many of you enjoy being around people like that? Because it's just so hard. It takes so much energy because what you see there is leanness of soul. That, that everything becomes more and more negative and pinched and I feel that's something we easily see in others but it's hard to see it in ourselves. I struggle with that. I've gone through phases and periods of my life where I feel like I'm just negative where nothing is ever good enough. Nothing is ever as good as it used to be. Because what happens when, when, when leanness comes into our souls, when we, when, when we become people of complaining, is that we forget that God is really with us. That's the big problem. We think that if God did anything, it was in the past, and we can't plan on God being like that in the future. You see, the people of Israel, every time they complained, they could look back and see what God had done. God had delivered them from slavery. God had eliminated their pursuers. And now they're in the desert and they're like, well, God may have done all these things, but there's not much more God can do. I think that's at the root when we become complainers. We think that, well, God has brought us this far, but there's not much more God's going to do. And I can get in that phase sometimes too that, that where I am I think oh God I'm, I'm in trouble. God why am I here? Why have you brought me out into the wilderness of Danville, Kentucky to die? I've never said that actually. <laughs> I don't believe it. I love actually love being here. I love being here. Um, but we think about that like and maybe you've seen it in your life. I feel like I do that sometimes. Um, my grandmother is very wise on this. Uh, I'm not just saying that because they're probably going to listen to the recording of this. And so, hi. Um, hi. But, but I remember, whenever I'll say something, like something's going bad, something's going wrong, my grandmother always says to me, Honey, do you think God brought you this far just to leave you there? And so where you and I sit, and I look around at people who have been given many advantages in life, Many good things, and we sit there, and I ask, did God bring you out here just to leave you here? Because the truth about God is that God is there all the time. The big thing about us seeing it is whether we'll notice and whether we'll look for it. It's interesting, if you turn over in Exodus to Exodus 17, you'll see there in the very first verse that it speaks about how the, the people of Israel uh, journeyed by stages, comma, as the Lord commanded. No matter where they were, no matter what happened to them, God was with them and on the move. 
That's what we call grace. That is God's unmerited favor, God's love and mercy for us. And, it's in, and, it's, and we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, we didn't ask for it, but it's there. Sheer grace. And as United Methodists, we believe that grace exists in all places and with all people. That there is no place you and I will ever go that God is not already there. And there is no person you and I will ever speak to that God is not already at work in and through them. And what we do when we complain, when we grumble, I love that word grumble. That's another word that is used uh, in, in, in 16 where it says complain. It says they grumble. That's one of those great examples of onomatopoeia. I don't know if we have any English teachers who, I, I'm afraid I'm wrong about this, but it's when a word sounds like it is, grumble. In that word, it just kind of gives you an idea of what it sounds like. So I don't think they were complaining out loud, but they were grumbling. Can you believe it? God's brought us out here in the desert to die. Can you believe it? God's brought us out here in the desert to die. What is that Moses thinking? That grumbling from the bottom and it, it works up. But what they did is they forgot that God was already at work. And God gives them what they asked for. God pours out his abundant grace around them and gives them miraculous bread. They're, they try to have physical explanations for how this happened. That there's a plant that produces a sap that hardens in certain weather. But what we know about it is it wasn't there the day before and it was there the day later. Not sure what to make of that, though. But that God came and God fed their needs. God gave them what they needed because He was there. It was grace. It's interesting when you when you look at 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 at, at, um, at this image of manna and bread. We look in the New Testament in the Gospel of John. And Jesus talks about this in John chapter 6. And there he says that God, it was not Moses that gave bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so the people said to him, Sir, we want this bread all the time. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's what our choir sang about this morning. That God is here and offers you the bread of life. That in the midst of all that you go through, that God is here with us. That in the midst of the struggles of your life, whether first world problems or more difficult times, God is there. God gives the bread that comes down from heaven, that is Jesus. And he says, come, receive, come, partake. It will nourish you, it will strengthen you in all seasons of your life. Come and take and receive. 
You see, I believe that is the secret to a life of contentment, to a life uh, that is not full of grumbling and complaining. That is the secret to an open and full soul, and that is acknowledging what God is doing in and around us. It is opening our eyes to the miracles of grace that are around each and every one of us. Because you see, everything around us is a gift. Like grace, we didn't ask to be born. We didn't deserve to be born. We didn't merit it by something we did. It's an act of grace. Your life, your finite life and the gifts you have are all a gift. And God asks us to look. Look for him in the midst of it. Let me give you a biblical example of the Apostle Paul. You know, the Apostle Paul, at first he had it made. He came from a good family, good reputation, had a little bit of money, best education you could have in his day. And he is a a, a great rising star in his religious hierarchy. He is zealous. He is respected. He He thinks he's got his life under control. And then God gets involved. You see, what he had thought was, what he had done is he had made his mission in life too small. And God came and turned him around. And I wish I could tell you, God turned him around and his life was really easy and really great from then on out. But it wasn't. You read Paul's letters and so much of the New Testament are just letters of Paul. And you read them and what he says there is, I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten, I've been stoned, I've been imprisoned, I've been argued, I've been threatened. But yet, what happens? How does he make it through? I think we see a hint of that if we look at Paul's letter to the Philippians in the fourth chapter. He speaks about all the struggles and troubles he's had, and he says these words. I'm going to put them on the screen. I want us to read them together. Let's read these together as we're able. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. That's 412. He has learned the secret. That's the promise he gives us. That no matter, that, that, that in the midst of a difficult life, he has learned that there is a secret to contentment, to living in, in gratitude and grace. And what is that? Let's look at 4.13. Some of you know it. You won't need the words. And what does it say on 4.13? It says, I can do, let's say this together, all this through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. How many of you, that's one of your favorite verses in the Bible? Amen. And now you know the context, right? He is saying that in the midst of life's difficulties and life's challenges, when I hold on to the living bread of Jesus Christ, I can make it through anything. Because it's not about me. It's about where is God at work in and through me. Because the truth is, God can and will be at work in each and every one of us. 
And so how do we do it? What is our hope in a world of negativity and complaining? Now, I am not saying that you cannot cry out to God. There's a whole book in the Bible. It's called Lamentations, and it is one lengthy pouring out of one's heart to God. But what I am saying is that we can have a life that is not given to a complaining heart, and the antidote to that is gratitude. The secret to avoiding and maintaining a heart that is not bitter and lean is to be grateful in all things. Do you know it will help you? It will help you in way. It's so funny. It will help you emotionally and mentally when we are grateful and we are generous. I was reading in the New York Times Magazine last Sunday. This is the New York Times, ready? New York Times Magazine that, that psychiatrists have done a study that involved offering one group of people $50 and saying they had to spend it on themselves. And another group, they gave $50 and said, you give it away to others. And they took both groups and they put them in an MRI machine before and after And they found, and this New York Times again, they found that the people who were generous, their brains were more active in the areas of, just in in everyday life, in normal things, the areas of their brain, and I don't fully understand this, but but I read it, (laughs) that the parts of their brain that are for altruism and generosity were more active because they had committed to be generous rather than selfish. Isn't it great when science confirms something the Bible has always taught us? Because the truth is that we need to be generous. That the truth is to see God in us is to give ourselves away. You know, that's why we receive an offering in this church. We receive an offering in this church Some of you will be confused by this, but the number one reason that we receive an offering is not because the church needs your money. That is not the main reason we receive an offering. The main reason is because you need to give. The main reason is because God has said, you, I have given you so much, and so give away. We are so filled that we are filled to overflowing In fact, that's why I believe, that's why God has asked us to tithe, to give 10% of our income. It is an act of thanksgiving, an act of trust that says that, you know, God, you and me with 90% is going to do more than me by myself with 100. That's tithing. That's generosity. It's an act of faith and an act of trust. When we give, when we are generous, and this is a generous congregation We can fight the battle against complaining and against the very leanness that threatens our souls. And so today we're going to give an opportunity to say thanks, to be generous, to recognize all things as a gift. I'm saying this because there are two things that I think many of you are wondering about today. One we're about an, almost an hour into a service and we've received no offering yet. Two, what's the little white card in the bulletin about? 
<laughs> right? One, in a moment, we're going to receive our morning offering. But you know, we're not going to pass the plate. We're going to do something a little different. We're going to do what Christians, many Christians around the world do, and we're going to invite you to come down and bring your offering as a physical act of generosity and giving. You can put the yellow cart, the yellow sheet insert in your bulletin in as well. And that little white sheet, I want you to, I want to challenge you today to write on that white sheet something, maybe many things that you're thankful for to remind you of what God has done. And then I want you, after you've given your offering, to come down to the altar rail and just place them on these rails that we can remember that we have a generous, gracious God and we can say thank you for all that he's done. You may have a pen, you may need to borrow one from your neighbor. But this morning, in a minute, Karen's going to come back up and she's going to play and these altar rails are going to be open. I want you to know this morning that Maybe this morning what you need in your life is you need to come and do business with God. You realize you have, you, you are, you, that God is showing you his grace in your life and you want to say yes and you want to say yes to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. These altar rails are open for you. Maybe the thing you can be thankful today is that this is the day that God has changed your life. and You can come and pray at these rails. And so this morning in a minute I'm going to invite the ushers to come at this time they're going to come and be standing here. We're going to receive our offering. We're going to receive the cards at the rail. Maybe you want to spend time in prayer. And we're going to have a time of worship. And we're going to have a time of saying, thank you, God, for all that you've done. Thank you, God, because that is our hope. Because when we come down to it, we have a choice in life. We can complain or we can be grateful and generous. And so which one will you choose today? Amen.